Hello, my name is McKenna, and today we will be reading all of Psalm 109. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer, so they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord, and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved to curse, let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessing, may it be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing at his coat. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he wraps around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accusers from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. But you, O God, my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I am shaken off like a locust. My knees are weak through fasting. My body has become gaunt with no fat. I am an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O Lord, have done it. Let them curse, but you will bless. They arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as in a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng, for he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. I wonder if you've ever thought about what it means to give somebody the middle finger. Not what it symbolizes. That is a dark hole you do not want to go down on the internet. Trust me. But what it means, what it says about us and what's inside us. I only ask this because I had the great pleasure of driving through Vancouver in rush hour traffic just a couple weeks ago. It was a grand time. And within 17 minutes, I saw three or four birds flipped. And what was astounding was not just that people did this. Honestly, that's a pretty low number for rush hour traffic in Vancouver. It was the speed that they did it with. It was like everybody's a gunslinger in the Wild West. Somebody cuts you off in traffic, woof, middle finger, right? Somebody drives into a crosswalk that you're about to walk in, woof, middle finger. Somebody looks at you wrong, boom, middle finger. It was wild. And what does that say about us? Like, what does it say about us that in a fraction of a second, we're willing to do something that's the physical equivalent of a curse, to proclaim a curse upon another person. And when, in what might be the only human interaction we'll have with them in our entire lives. And the only thing that I can think about that this means, the thing that this says, 
is that buried just below the surface, for so many of us, there's just unbridled rage. There's just anger and hatred. It takes a fraction of a second for it to come out of us, quicker than we can even think. And what do we do with that? Well, the psalm that was just so beautifully read for us, I, I believe, is a masterclass, a masterclass on what to do with our strong feelings. And I believe that as we explore this psalm, we're going to learn that our strong feelings, even our feelings of anger and, and hatred and, and rage, they're there to be prayed. And I think we're going to learn from this psalm a general lesson about prayer, that as we've been trying to say this entire time, that the tagline of this whole series, that praying is bringing our whole selves to all of God. And why do I believe that? Well, there's this little detail in the book of Genesis. When Adam and Eve are first created, there's a small line that says they were naked and unashamed. Now, I'm an evangelical prude, much like many of you probably are, so I just glanced past that as fast as I could. And aside from one time when I made a joke with my friends that like, if you wanted to make a million dollars, you could set up a Christian spa and body positivity center called Naked and Unashamed. You'd make tons of money, right? People would go wild for it. But what I've come to understand about that passage, and a lot of people talk about this, is that it's a hint that the original state of things, that the design for us as humans is to be completely and totally vulnerable, 100% defenseless, and absolutely unashamed about it. And that's why the first effect of sin is not death. It's not dying. It's, it's not even necessarily a shatter in the relationship with God. The, the first effect of sin is in the words, and Adam hid from the face of God. And ever since we've had that knowledge of good and evil, ever since we've been able to see ourselves in that way, we've been hiding. And this would be fine if we weren't rubbish at hiding. Like we're literally like toddlers playing hide and seek if you've ever played hide and seek with them, right? They, they scream at you from the room that they're hiding in. Oh, oh, here I am, right? I actually believe that we're so designed to be fully known, fully loved, fully accepted, that it's part of our, our, our DNA that we're unable to hide what we feel. This is caught in um, psychoanalysis. Sigmund Freud, in his theory of repression, essentially states this. It's been attributed to him that he said, unexpressed emotions never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. And if you want an easy example of this, just think of the last time you used the word fine to describe your mood. I can paint the picture for you. You're walking down the street, somebody says, oh, how's it going? And you say, oh, I'm fine. Translation, you're not fine. You're feeling something probably pretty poorly, but instead of just sharing that with the person, we, we hide it so that they have to drag it out of us like some sort of a grave robber. And by the time they actually drag the feeling out, it becomes far bigger than it was in the first place, turns into a zombie and eats their face. There's that line from the Italian job. What does fine mean? It, might, it means freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. That's a really small example of the way that when we try to hide, we usually end up hurting things more than helping things. But think of the guy in Florida a, a few years ago who shot someone in the face for talking in a theater. Something like that, that doesn't just happen. 
That's a lifetime of letting the rage and hate and anger boil just beneath the surface until finally one day it comes out before you can even think about it. The way we, we steward our feelings to some extent is a deadly, deadly serious business. And Psalm 109 probably surprised you because it is uncensored. Makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up a few of the phrases in it. But part of what I think it's trying to teach us, and it's, and it's together with a whole collection of psalms that would be called psalms of plea or lament, is that coming out of hiding, revealing ourselves to God, is one of the primary things we need to do to, to be fully human. There's also a hint in all of these psalms that it's just good for us. Almost all the psalms of lament and plea end with what we could call a return. You catch it in verse 30 in this psalm. The psalmist writes, with my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. And the interesting thing is, is that nothing's changed in the situation. God's still silent. The accusers are still chattering. And yet the psalmist says, I will open my mouth now and praise you. There's a hint that there's some healing just in coming out of hiding. But the other thing that these psalms do that many commentators have noted is that they're almost all singular, which is strange given how communal ancient Near Eastern society was. The, the nation was a unit. You thought of yourself in terms of your relationships. And this seems to bear witness to the fact that there's something about feeling strongly, something about suffering that makes us want to hide, that makes us feel isolated. The psalmist literally says at one point, I've been shaken off like a grasshopper. Like if you've ever walked through long grass and then a grasshopper lands on your shoulder, you kind of shake it off. That's what he feels like in the community. And yet, there's a return to the throng. There's a return to the worshiping community. There's a hint that the path to God is always alongside the path back towards other people. And the beautiful irony of this psalm and, and others like it is that while it's bearing witness to this problem of the isolation that comes with strong feelings and suffering, it's also trying to solve the problem because by the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we've been given something that we're supposed to read communally in situations like this to remind us that the prayer of Psalm 109 might be sitting right beside us might actually be praying about us, even. See, we bring our whole selves to all of God in prayer. But that prayer, even when done alone, is never, ever, ever a solitary endeavor. And the call to us as a community is to remember, if we're not in suffering, to remember the people that would be praying psalms like this one. Now, you might say, that's great, Ricky. Like, but that just sounds like good advice. Good advice I've gotten in a million different places, right? I mean, I, I, I can get a therapist. I can, I can have good friends that I share all my feelings with. I can have a contemplative practice. I can exercise, right? I, this sounds like it's just about being emotionally healthy. Like, what does prayer have to, to do with that? What does prayer have to offer other than that? Well, I believe quite resolutely, actually, that as much as we can say that prayer is bringing our whole selves to all of God, that's maybe the essence of prayer but there's a mechanic of prayer. There's, there's, in some sense, a technique you could almost say, and that is that a prayer is 
always presented in scripture as a request. It's not letting go of the emotion. It's not holding on to the thing that we want to happen. It's, to borrow a phrase from our resident poet, Luke Knight, tugging on the sleeve of our Heavenly Father and lifting the thing up and saying, can I have this? Can, can I have this? And the reason that this is good news and not just good advice is because the whole history of Scripture, the whole history of the universe is one in which we call and God answers. What was the exodus but an answered prayer? What was the redemption for our sins on the cross by Jesus Christ but an answered prayer? What is Living Waters Church but an answered prayer? What is your life but an answered prayer? The great mystery at the center of the universe is not just that we feel things and need to express them. It's that at the center of things, there is a God, a heavenly father who wants to listen to us. And that's the essential context to make sense of what goes on in Psalm 109. Christians have avoided the Psalm for generations. They've been embarrassed by it. C.S. Lewis actually wrote about this Psalm. It is monstrously simple-minded to read the cursings in the Psalms with no feeling except one of horror at the uncharity of the poets. They are indeed devilish. Now, calling scripture devilish is kind of like saying dry water. It's always sketchy to disagree with somebody who's way smarter than you are and dead, but I think he's a little off base here, and that's because these Psalms are not curses. The words from verses 6 to 19 are not a curse because a curse is something that is said believing just the fact of saying it makes something happen. And that is not the case. These are requests made to a God who has his own will. A tug on the sleeve of the Heavenly Father saying, this is what I want to happen. And the answer in any praying situation, the answer possibilities are always yes, no, or not yet. And the answer in this case could have been a very strong and resolute no way. It could have been David no, I am not going to make his children orphans that nobody pays attention to on the street. Why don't you just go play your harp or something? It'll chill you out. Now, the other thing that the psalm does that we need to grapple with is that it is actually a psalm about God's silence. Nothing changes in the life of the prayer in this psalm. The accuser still chatters on. And I'll be honest with you, um, there's a couple areas in my life where God has been silent for years. A couple really important things. And I'll just offer to you how I think about some of that. One of the things I've learned is that silence is a prerequisite for listening. I had this mentor who used to do this thing where you would say something to him and then he would just... It was so unsettling. It was like the most unsettling thing in the world. But one of the things I noticed that happened every time he did that is I would say something, he would sit there silently, and then I'd be like, no, 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 I didn't mean that. I didn't mean that. No, 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 no. You're, it's more like this. Or he'd sit there and be silent, and I'd be like, no, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. I'm, I'm a little off on that one. That's not this or that. You, you know, sometimes... I've learned to let myself see the silence of God, not as a gaze of cold indifference, 
but has the gaze of adoration from my heavenly Father, him looking me in the eyes, waiting for me to say what I think next, making space not just for my speaking, but but for my action, holding me capable sometimes, saying, no, actually, I don't need to intervene in that for you. You can do this. And that's the other essential thing about praying, you know, therapy, exercise, contemplative practice, you know, all of these things are so good. We need to all be doing them all the time. But, but prayer is that fundamental place where a whole selves comes to all of God. And God, the Father, through the Son, by the power of the Spirit, shapes us. And the best example of this that I can find regarding this psalm in particular is in the book of Acts. You see, Peter quotes Psalm 109.8 regarding Judas. After Judas' tragic end, Peter says, let another rise and take his office. Now, I don't know if you've ever been betrayed. If you've ever had someone you love, someone you know deeply, intentionally do something to harm you. The first disciples knew what that was like. Somebody that they had laughed around campfires with, somebody that they had slept under the stars in the Judean desert with, somebody that they knew and loved and traveled with, were on mission together with, chose to betray unto death the one that they had come to believe was God in the flesh. And we are told that the apostles had at least one sword amongst them. What would you do? I might have sharpened it. I might have gone looking. But the very fact that this psalm is quoted seems to at least point out to me that that this might have been a place that the early church turned to pray in that situation. And that in their praying, they lifted up their desires to God and God gave them an answer about how they were supposed to act. That as one commentator says, praying these violent words was actually itself an act of nonviolence. So the question for all of us today, who are you sharpening your swords for? The vaxxers or anti-vaxxers? The left or the right? That internet personality that you believe is a racist or the internet personality you believe is a a snowflake, the boomers of the Zers? We're being sorted every day by algorithms into communities that tell us to view other people as enemies. But beyond that, we've suffered, we've been betrayed, we've been cheated, we've been abused. Maybe we didn't sharpen our sword to, to stab somebody else, we sharpened our sword and then we swallowed it. And it's been inside us for years, cutting us up. And the reason this psalm has stuck with me, since about four years ago when I read it seriously for a class, Because of verse four, there's this weird Hebrew construction that all translators have trouble making sense of. And what I'm about to say might not be the best translation of it, but it just sticks in my head. Um, Verse four is read, in return for my love, they accuse me. And then a very wooden translation of the Hebrew is, but I am prayer. And I do not know what else to tell you to be. In a world, as cold and indifferent and screwed up as ours, with the feeble ability, with just the breakableness of our lives and the very few things we can do to affect a permanent change, 
I don't know what else to be. I don't know what else to be but that thin, reedy voice calling out into the night, Lord, have mercy. So all I can say to us today is, don't let the sun go down on your anger or your rage or your fear or your hate, your doubt, your sadness. Don't let this moment go by without taking that first step to bring your whole self to all of God, to be the prayer that you are called to be. Abraham Joshua Heschel once wrote, that a person is a being whose anguish may move the heart of God. So lift it up. Lift up the anguish. Move his heart. We call, he answers. Be the prayer you were made to be. And I know that I know that I know. It may not be tomorrow. It may not be 10 years from now. It may not even be in your lifetime. But I know that he will answer you.